It's Monday, March the 1st, 2021. More than 240 million vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loda, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens, from the creation of new vaccines to how they impact public health and hopefully, one day, help us get out of lockdowns. We'll look at how the vaccines are made, the challenges of distributing them, and the impact of all that on public health and global geopolitics. Today, we're discussing whether there will be enough vaccines. We're looking at how vaccines are made, why production is so variable, and whether supply will meet demand this year. Natasha, hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Alok. Now, Natasha, this is probably the first week in ages that you've not had to write the cover story for the paper. So what have you done with all your spare time this week? Well, I've been incredibly busy trying to keep tabs on the global rollout, which, as you might imagine, gets bigger and bigger by the day. So, so I- no rest for you? No, no rest from vaccines? No rest from vaccines. Um, There's new countries, there's new approvals, there's new vaccination programs starting. And so I've been trying to follow that, particularly in lower and middle income countries. Well, I look forward to hearing about all of that. Joining us for our discussion this week is Oliver Morton. He's the briefings editor at The Economist and often gets to have a say on what appears on the front cover of the paper. Uh, Oliver, how many COVID briefings do you reckon you've had to edit this year? I don't know, somewhere between too many and not enough. Um, You know, there's always more to say about COVID. There are always good reasons to put it into a big story and at the front of the paper. Yeah, so so I'm I'm going to be Goldilocks. I'm I'm going to say I've done just the right amount. Just the right amount. Well, that's good. That's fortunate. Today, we're going to be looking at vaccine production. In a moment, we'll hear from Adar Poonavala, the boss of the Serum Institute in India, the world's biggest supplier of vaccines. But to kick us off, Oliver, what do you think is the biggest challenge when it comes to production? I think I tend to go for the tail risk. What worries me most is the idea that there'll be a bad batch and that something goes wrong somewhere in someone's quality control and somehow a bad batch gets out and that massively undermines public confidence somewhere or maybe everywhere. So that's my biggest worry. Natasha, is that something that you worry about too? I mean, it's obviously a concern in the back of my mind. I guess what's in the front of my mind is the sort of bottlenecks in the vaccine supply chain. And I know we talk a lot about countries holding on to vaccines for themselves, vaccine nationalism, but the problems actually are much deeper than this and go into the equipment that's needed to make these vaccines. And so whether it's the bags that vaccine makers need, the glass vials, the syringes, bottlenecks in production there, and also export controls on these and people hoarding them, like companies hoarding lots of supplies of these things. This is something I'm looking into at the moment, and I'll definitely report back on it. 
But, you know, at the moment, we're just ramping up our production. And as we go into the year, I think that constraints in some of these areas could cause us quite big problems. And remember, companies have said that they think they can make 12 billion doses this year. That's all theoretical unless we can iron these problems out. Thank you both. We'll return to the question of whether there'll be enough vaccines later in this episode. The world needs tens of billions of doses of vaccine. It also needs them quickly, as a race is already underway between the supply of vaccines and the spread of variants of the coronavirus. Vaccine making is highly complex, and in Europe at least, delays in scaling up new production lines have caused some serious political rifts. Last month, AstraZeneca revealed its factories in Belgium would struggle to fulfil orders from European governments. Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson have also faced production problems. It's likely there'll be more glitches. A lot of that comes down to the way vaccines are made. When you rely on living cells to make something for you, those cells, they just want to live. They don't care about your purposes of using them to make a vaccine. Hal Hodson is a technology correspondent for The Economist. He told me why vaccines that need biological cells can take longer to produce than newer technologies such as mRNA. So there's a kind of tension there, which is that you have to not just focus on making the vaccine, you also have to focus on keeping those cells alive. And as it happens, keeping 50,000 litre steel tank of, say, human kidney cells or insect cells alive while they multiply and churn out the vaccine product that you want is just very, very difficult. It's very, very complex. Whereas the RNA vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, You only have to grow the E. coli culture for a couple of days. You only need a little bit of DNA to start the process. And then you just buy a bunch of chemicals. One of the components is called nucleotides. You also buy a bunch of enzymes. And all of these are just produced in factories with much more repeatable results. So tell us about why there's been some issues with the AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe. We know that the European Union has asked uh, the company to supply a certain number of doses and then AstraZeneca came back with the information that perhaps it would take longer than they thought. Um, We know that this vaccine works, it can be made, it's been made in the UK for many months now and in the UK many millions of doses are being delivered. So what kind of problems have there been in the European manufacture? Yeah, so AstraZeneca's boss gave a very frank interview to an Italian newspaper called La Repubblica uh, all about this. And he basically said that it's a problem with scaling very, very fast. So when you want to not just produce one tank of this stuff, but tens of tanks of this stuff all over a continent, across different facilities with many different partners, it's kind of like uh, if you had a, a very complex recipe for a very fancy dinner, and you didn't just want to make it in one kitchen, you wanted to make it in loads of kitchens with loads of different chefs. And you needed the final plate of food to be identical, coming out of every single kitchen. And it needed to be identical to the degree of exactness that is required from something that is injected into the human body. And so every time you scale this up, every time you take a few cells and grow them into billions of cells in a giant vat, you need to adjust for local conditions, you need to tweak, you need to do trial and error. Some of their facilities in Europe are producing a vaccine with a yield that was three times higher 
than in other places. Basically, he's saying biology is complex. And despite our best efforts, we just haven't managed to totally conquer it. You talked about how the scaling is an issue. But is another issue not that um, at some point they're going to have to create new vaccines or tweak the vaccines when new variants uh, increasingly spread? I mean, how set up are the different methodologies to to do that? This is where uh, messenger RNA comes into its own because all you need to do is take the genetic sequence of the new virus and essentially drop it into the back end of the of the production line. You take a couple of days to grow those E. coli cells we were talking about, take your DNA template out of those E. coli cells and start making vaccine. And the folks who are on the front lines of the messenger RNA systems tell me that they could do this in a few weeks to sort of a couple of months from detecting new variant to producing new vaccine. It's much, much harder to do this with the more biologically reliant production systems because of that complexity, because of the tweaking with scale-up. If there was a new variant, it would very likely interact with the cell culture in a different way that would require a whole other round of tweaking and rebalancing as the culture was grown. And essentially, it would be like changing one ingredient in the dish and you'd have to figure out entirely again how to make it perfect. Natasha, the argument between the European Union and AstraZeneca was very public. Has it been resolved now? Is it all kind of back on track? The EU had a very public spat with AstraZeneca. They got very cross with the firm and the French boss of AstraZeneca, Pascal Sorio, who we have to remember used to be a street fighter in the suburbs of Paris, you know, literally would fight with fisticuffs, came out and defended himself and said, this is a problem of your making, not ours. And since then, things have gone a bit quiet. I mean, the fact is that Astra hasn't been able to deliver the amount of vaccine that it had promised, but nor have the other firms. All the other firms had to tell Europe they weren't going to get quite as much vaccine as they hoped for. So I think Europe has come to accept the reality of the situation. I don't think it's happy about that. But one thing to say, I think, is that both Germany and France have been quite cool on their support of the Astra vaccine. And there's been, I would say, some misspeaking about the Astra vaccine, which I think has driven down demand for it in Europe, which is a shame. And I think that European leaders need to be much more positive in their support for it if they want people to accept it, which they should do because it's a very effective vaccine. It's also interesting that you have the example of countries that have just left the EU, like Britain, or not yet joined, like Serbia, doing so very much better than the EU core countries, which has to add up to, at some stage, a political problem. Yeah, and also remember that Hungary as well has broken ranks with the bloc and has started to procure vaccine outside of the EU. And so, yeah, there's a real political issue there. Um, They all wanted to move in lockstep and show the strength of the European Union. And actually, they've revealed some of the bloc's weaknesses. Oliver, just going back to the manufacturing process, um, we heard from Hal there about the difficulty of making 
the biological vaccines compared to the messenger RNA vaccines. We're talking about variants appearing um, already um, in, in the coronavirus. How difficult are each of the types of vaccine technology? How difficult is it to tweak them to make new ones? It's clearly easier to tweak the mRNA vaccine because, as Hal said, in the virus particle vaccines like the AstraZeneca vaccine, you actually have to have a cell making something. So to change the vaccine, you have to make a new cell that makes something else. I mean, it's not difficult to do it roughly, but to actually get a cell culture working is is hard work. Whereas in the mRNA vaccines, all you have to do is change the sequence of the mRNA. Although putting the mRNA into its little lipid envelope is not as easy as some people might make out, you don't have to do it differently if you're putting a different mRNA in. So the mRNA vaccines are clearly more easily tweakable. That's not to say that the virus particle vaccines aren't also tweakable, but the mRNA ones will, will do it better. And I think that's why we've been interested in mRNA vaccines for so long and why we'd viewed them as having potential for responding to pandemics long before um, you know, this outbreak even happened. That was what we were looking at. This technology could help us respond more quickly. And we're seeing the power of the platform. I just want to ask you both where this particular technology goes from here. Obviously, they're easier to tweak, uh, hopefully. But where else can this technology go now that we know that mRNA vaccines work? Well, I'd just like to say that it, it isn't exactly the first time we've ever produced them. It's certainly the first time we've produced them at scale. But one of the things we've been looking at them for uh, decades is whether we can use them to make things like cancer vaccines. And so the idea is, is that cancer is a sort of genetically driven disease. And so if you can figure out the mutation that's driving a particular tumour, you can then create a little sequence that you drop into an mRNA vaccine and so you can create a personalised cancer vaccine. So that's one of the applications people were looking at. I think the other thing to remember about mRNA and indeed about biotechnology and synthetic biology more generally is that they can be, in some forms, very distributed manufacturing technologies. That mRNA can effectively be printed. Now, that doesn't mean you can necessarily get it into the right lipid nanoparticles, but in various ways, you can actually spread out biological manufacturing a lot. And, you know, the place you see this most obviously is in beer. Beer is a very distributed manufacturing technology. The fact that uh, there are now far more beers on the shelves of almost any supermarket you go into makes very real the point that microbes can be made to do all sorts of different things in different conditions, and you can do it on quite a small batch level. And in the long run, that's where the, the business of biology, I think, will probably go to these very distributed manufacturing networks. So you realise, Ollie, that what you're saying is that the picture of the future is mRNA microbreweries on every corner run by hipsters. I don't know. I mean, maybe you should be seeing it as a sort of like fight between Kinko's, as were, and Greenwich Mean Time Beer. Those are sort of like the, uh, uh, the archetypal biobusinesses of the future. Well, that's the future. For now, I think huge manufacturing plants are still going to be required. And we'll discuss some of that in the next section with the Serum Institutes in India. 
If you want to read all of The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, then you should subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. A story I enjoyed this week was in the graphic detail section, which looked at how the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, how that has evolved over the past year. We know about the different variants on the rise in different parts of the world, and this piece created a family tree for how these things have turned up in the last 12 months. India is crucial to the global vaccine rollout. The country is home to the Serum Institute, the world's largest vaccine manufacturer, which expects to produce 1.5 billion doses of vaccine this year. Last week, it provided the first shipment of jabs through COVAX, the global vaccine sharing initiative for COVID-19. 600,000 doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine were sent to Ghana from the Serum Institute's facility in Pune. Adar Poonavala runs the company. It was founded by his father Cyrus. Before the pandemic, Adar and his wife Natasha were known mostly for their glamorous lifestyle and passion for horses. All that changed after a conversation with his father last April. They decided to take a huge gamble on the production of what were back then still experimental vaccines for COVID-19. As a result, less than a year later... Adar Poonavala is running arguably the most important company in the world. I realized very early on in March, April, that I had to commit one way or another and choose the right partners and invest. Invest in terms of getting the equipment ready, spending on the clinical trials, so many other things. Mr. Poonavala has been speaking to The Economist's Mumbai bureau chief, Tom Easton. It was a very difficult decision to make. Do we wait for six months to get and see the trial data before we back a vaccine or not? Because the dilemma was, if I waited six months, come January, February of 2021, we wouldn't have any doses. So I had to do everything eight months ahead of time. And that was a major risk in the face of huge uncertainty. What will the role be for the Serum Institute in vaccinating the world in terms of addressing the COVID crisis? I think we will play a very crucial role, at least to begin with, whilst other manufacturers scale up their capacities, and I'm sure they will, and we all hope that they do, because we need billions of doses to go out there as soon as possible. So at the moment, I think in the first two quarters or third, uh, you know, till the third quarter of this year, we will probably produce 40 to 50 percent of what the world needs. Hopefully, I hope I can perform on that kind of delivery of vaccines. We have the capacity to. We have been doing so from the month of January and February so far. And the ratio of our contribution will obviously be reduced as other manufacturers scale up. And we hope that they do it as soon as possible because we're going to have a shortage of at least two years, for at least two years between the demand and the supply to get as many people that we need vaccinated. We need to reach a certain level, as we all know, to be able to reduce transmission and thereby reducing the the mortality and morbidity of the disease. So let's talk about the future of the Serum Institute and vaccine production. 
what would uh, enhance the ability of the Serum Institute and entities like it to help the world? Global harmonization on regulatory will shave off months, if not years, on vaccine development, whether it's for COVID vaccines or other vaccines that are necessary to protect your, your populations in different parts of the world. Even if you look at the situation today, you've got WHO that has its sets of regulations, you've got Europe, the EMEA, you've got UK MHRA, and you've got US FDA. If, you, if all of these were to combine and keep a certain platform or, or level or, or standardize the questions and the due diligence that they need to do for pandemic level events and vaccines and drugs, that will make life a lot easier and quicker to launch these products. Further than that, a level of cooperation and sharing of IP and technology for critical vaccines and essential products could be done. A template of that could be done. And funding from governments to the private sector to be able to build dedicated capacity for pandemics. And if we can do that in different regions of the world, one or two in the East, one for Africa, one for the United States, one in Europe and the UK, then for the next pandemic, we will all be far better prepared than where we were today, where we were scrambling for capacity and partnerships and all of that. So if we can put all that in place, we'd be so much ready or prepared for, for the next pandemic. Natasha, India finds itself in a very interesting and good position. Is it a matter of planning or luck? Well, I think it's it's planning and it's planning by one man, we just heard there. I remember this story so well because Tom and I reported on it last year. It was actually in April that Adar Punawala was driving into work and he had this thought, I want to produce this vaccine, I want to mass produce this vaccine. And he made a phone call to his father, Cyrus, and they agreed that they would do it. And that decision was hugely important. It was way ahead of anyone else. And we've been hearing on this program all about how it's necessary to get an early start. And that's what he's done. So all credit to him. Is it important for non-Western countries to have a sort of a vaccine pharmaceutical champion like this? Yeah, it's hugely important. I mean, if the Serum Institute wasn't there, the Global South would be in a completely different situation. India, for example, hopes to produce just about 3.7 billion doses of vaccine this year, which is an extraordinary amount. And if, if that wasn't there, you're going to be looking at doses coming mainly from the United States, China and Europe. And Europe and United States have their own concerns. And China, well, I mean, they're doing a lot of bilateral deals to sort of win friends. So India's position is just really important. I mean, it's, it's quite a vaccine sort of superpower, if you like. Oliver, just let's step back for a second. The Serum Institute is the star of the show right now in India, but the country does have a medicines production reputation. It does provide uh, uh, quite a lot of medicines for that part of the world and beyond. Yeah, India has a history that really came to the fore, I think, during the push to increase access to antiretroviral therapies for uh, AIDS, for HIV infection. Uh, It has a history of making drugs, especially generic drugs, for the global south and pushing to 
improve supply when branded drugs are very expensive. And this has led to various disputes, but I think it has made India a real leader in that role. When you compare it to China, a lot of uh, biopharmaceutical manufacture involves intermediates and raw materials from China, but it's India that's really pushed this idea of making drugs for export around the global south. And Natasha, can I talk to you about COVAX? So we saw that uh, the Serum Institute's um, given its first uh, shipment to to COVAX. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about how that uh, particular partnership is going and and what we can expect from that? So COVAX is hoping to send vaccines all around the world this year. There's been quite a lot of anxiety about the fact that rich countries have vaccines and poor ones don't. And part of that has come down to the fact that the first two vaccines to arrive are not necessarily as good for global distribution and are quite expensive as well. So what we've seen in the last few weeks is we've seen progress with the AstraZeneca vaccine. We've seen a delivery to Ghana. We've seen a delivery to Cote d'Ivoire. And so we're now starting to deliver to these lower income countries. And COVAX is going to be really important. Oliver, I'd like to get your thoughts on what Adar Poonavala was saying to, in, our, in the interview just there about how we think about vaccine production in the future when there are more emergencies. So he was suggesting harmonising regulations globally um, rather than having to go through individual regulators. He was talking about setting up essentially um, sites that can sort of ramp up very quickly to produce vaccines. I mean, these sound like good ideas. How likely are they to actually happen? Ah, well, uh, you asked me on a day when my crystal ball is strangely cloudy. Um, I think harmonised regulation, one mustn't go overboard on it because harmonising regulation can sometimes actually make regulation slower because, in effect, you have to regulate at the level of the slowest previous regulator. That could be the case. So I think a fast-track route to harmonised regulation would be a useful thing, but I don't think in general you'd necessarily want to go global on that. Oh, I disagree with Uh, that. Can I disagree with that? You can disagree. Of course you can. Go for it. So, I mean, look, harmonisation, look, there are loads of problems with it. Yeah, right. Oliver's absolutely correct. But it's not to say that the international regulators haven't been trying to harmonise over the years. They haven't made that much progress, but it is something that's kind of on their agenda. And if they are going to harmonise anything, then surely there's an argument to do some harmonisation with respect to pandemic vaccines. And that's, I don't think we're disagreeing then, Natasha, because that's, I mean, there should be a fast track for things that need to be done very quickly. I don't think that everything should necessarily go through a grand unified planetary process. What about the global vaccine hubs, though? This is something that I think is something that it feels like the right thing to do to have manufacturing capacity waiting, but then it costs money and who's going to pay for it? I think you're you're quite right. I mean, uh, pure market systems, as for instance, we saw in Texas uh, a couple of weeks ago, if you don't pay for people to have idle capacity, you can be in a lot of trouble when things get extreme. And I think it's absolutely clear that yes, there should be idle capacity. Who will pay for it? I don't know. There's a very good case for doing it from the public purse. I also think it's not unlikely that it might be the sort of thing that global philanthropies might get interested in, though, you know, when you have to choose between saving someone now with a dollar and spending a dollar on saving 10 people when there's a next pandemic, I don't know how you make those calls. But yes, I think surplus capacity, surge capacity, I think that's a huge lesson from this pandemic. Now it's time for an update on the world's best-performing vaccination programmes. 
James Fransham from The Economist data team has been monitoring the latest. And in a trial of our own, we've turned that data into sound. First to be sonified this week is Denmark. 6% of the population in the country have received a first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. And 3% have received a second dose. The United States has now administered over 70 million doses. 14% of the population have gotten one jab, and 6% have received a second jab. Chile's vaccination programme has been quick off the mark. 16% of its population have now received a first dose. No one has received a booster dose. In Britain, one quarter of the population have now been vaccinated with one dose. Just 1% have received a follow-up shot. The UAE has administered one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine to 37% of the population and a second dose to 22%. Leading the race to herd immunity is Israel. 53% of the population have received a first jab and 37% have received a second jab. James, what can you tell us about whether supply is likely to meet demand this year? There are more than 200 COVID-19 vaccines in various stages of development, but you can really whittle those down to just a handful. Four, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson have now met very strict requirements for, for regulatory approval in at least one Western country. And then another, Novavax, is expected to get the green light soon. There are several other vaccines, a couple in China and one in Russia, Sputnik, which have been authorised in some developing countries too. So if we just focus ourselves actually on just those vaccine makers, they've sold 8 billion doses to countries and organisations like COVAX. And we reckon they have capacity for about 4 billion further doses this year alone. So those 12 billion doses is basically enough to give two shots to each of the 5.8 billion adults on Earth. So that's the number that's been ordered. Do we know if that's the number that can actually be produced this year? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of disappointment. We've heard about the delays in Europe and elsewhere. So I think the best way to assess things is just to look simply at jabs in the arms. So that's basically public data that's available. And on that basis, around 250 million doses have been administered so far. And that number is obviously growing by about 5 million new doses a day. So it's actually been slowing lately from about 6 million 10 days ago to about 4.5 million now. Those 200 uh, million jabs, that still leaves another 5.6 billion people to vaccinate. And at current rates, we're thinking about 5 million a day. That would 
take about a thousand days to vaccinate all those people. So we really need to speed things up. I've no doubt that things will once more vaccines come online, but they need to start vaccinating at 18 million a day to get to you know, a single dose for those 5.6 billion adults. Natasha, what's your view on whether production will meet demand this year? Well, this is an impossible question really to answer accurately. We have to think about the variants and when we start producing variant vaccines, it's going to eat into the raw materials we need to produce the vaccines against the Wuhan strain, the original wild type virus. And then, of course, we've talked about various production bottlenecks as well. And then, of course, we've also kind of covered the issue of ramping up vaccine production. And so, as we saw with AstraZeneca, you can start out hoping to produce a certain amount and then you can kind of hit uh, production problems. And all the major pharma companies producing vaccines have hit on production delays of this kind. And so we should expect that to happen for lots of other firms as well this year, unfortunately. So I think there's what we hope to produce this year. And then, you know, there's the reality. Do you think there's a a worry there, Natasha, that a good summer for the Northern Hemisphere, we should remember, a good summer means that people will become a little bit complacent and the places that don't vaccinate us fully will have a nastier seasonal peak next winter? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're seeing countries like New Zealand and Australia that have done really well in controlling the outbreak and now having to kind of convince people that actually they really need to get vaccinated. Whereas in countries like Britain and America, you know, people are running to the vaccine centres as soon as they're called because they can't deal with the consequences of living with this virus. And so, yes, if the virus is controlled in lots of countries this year, you could see us having to shift to a kind of a really different way of approaching the vaccination in a lot of countries. I can see, though, that, I mean, you're you're talking, if there's a, if there's a Northern Hemisphere summer effect, and I think we should bear in mind that as we're recording this in the Northern Hemisphere in London, it's really sunny and nice today. So we're all thinking spring-like thoughts. Um, the question of whether a country gets its vaccination on track for July or September might not be that important. But getting it done in this sunny weather, as it were, um, fixing the roof while the sun shines, might still be a very important goal. It is. It is. You've put it absolutely, encapsulated it perfectly. Natasha, the flip side of this is about rich countries who've bought loads and loads and loads of vaccine and who maybe don't need it all straight away or in the next uh, few months. Um, What's your thought on what should happen to those doses? Well, I think they should donate them through COVAX. And that is much more superior a decision than making bilateral deals to donate vaccine because COVAX can direct these doses to the countries that are ready to distribute them. And also COVAX can provide support to countries that uh, need help in distributing vaccine. They can also you know, match vaccines to countries as well. And so if you get a donation of a Pfizer vaccine, then they are well placed to decide which countries are able to uh, distribute them. Um, one of the things things that I've picked up on my reporting, though, is what's more important than saying you're going to donate is also saying how much 
and when. And so Britain has said quite recently that it will donate its surplus vaccines. And what I'm hearing, for example, from the Red Cross is that it's this kind of certainty that's more important that allows countries to plan. And so, you know, if countries like Britain, and of course, America hasn't actually made a commitment yet at all, but if countries could start making firmer commitments, that would be great. And the problem that I fully agree with, Natasha, the problem is that you obviously don't want to start committing yourself to giving away vaccines until you know how efficiently you can do it. So I think there is a certain amount of give of give to be uh, allowed while people are still ramping up systems. But yes, in, as people learn how to do this, providing good scheduled uh, sense of when surplus vaccine will be made available to other people, and I agree through COVAX would be a great way to do it, that should happen slightly later in the phasing in my point, from my point of view. I think politically it's hard if your own vaccine programme is not running in a way that the public perceives as being sort of like all out, then I think already giving away things could be politically rather difficult. Uh, but uh, I think it should be another incentive for getting vaccine programmes running all out. And then we can start looking at how much is actually already ordered by people who aren't going to need it. And you know, what's important is not that countries sort of find some vaccines sitting at the back of their sofa and say, actually, do you know what, we don't <laughs> need these. It's more important that they identify supplies that are going to be coming from vaccine manufacturing plants and that these are sent directly to countries because no country is going to find that appealing. You know, here's some vaccines fell off the back of a lorry kind of thing. We didn't use them. So, so that's kind of another element to the donation. Now, just before we go, is there anything else, uh, Oliver, Natasha, that you've spotted this week that you think people might have missed? Sex in the city. Um, sex in the city, <laughs> as we know, is being um, revamped. Has it got a vaccination storyline? That's exactly the point. Sex in the city is being relaunched as, and just like that. And one of the interesting decisions they've made, or according to uh, news that came out this week that Hadley Freeman wrote about in The Guardian, they will be taking the pandemic into their storylines. And that's cut very interesting, as Hadley says, because this is a show set in New York about New York that did not take 9-11 into its storylines. And so it raised in my mind the whole question of to what extent the pandemic is and isn't being reflected in cultural production. And, you know, one of the things that people have pointed out, people like Laura Spinney have pointed out, is that actually you can't see the 1919 flu pandemic very strongly in what people wrote about and what people were saying uh, in the cultural world at that time, though maybe you can now when you start to look for it. So I was, I, it interested me that for some reason, maybe because Sex in the City is to some extent about intimacy, it really has to reflect changes in intimacy because of the pandemic. But it's quite an interesting thing that basically a pure fantasy, uh, well, actually a deeply impure and problematic fantasy, should take this little bit of realism or big bit of realism into itself. Oliver, I would never have expected to talk about Yeah, that's because you're such a Miranda. This, was, this is a complete curveball for me. <laughs> I've got images. I don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I, I kind of, I sort of imagine uh, Sarah Jessica Parker sitting with her cosmopolitan, <laughs> crying into a, a Zoom call over her latest boyfriend. It doesn't appeal, I have to say. <laughs> Oliver, Natasha, thank you both very much. Thanks. That was fun. Bye, guys. 
That's all from us. The show's producer is Duncan Barber. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. And the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at We'll have more on the jab next week when we'll focus on clinical trials. We'll speak to a scientist leading a new trial where volunteers will be purposefully infected with COVID-19 to see how vaccines work. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening.